When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the network, and today I'm joined by Professor Zhu Enzhang of Willamette College to discuss his book, Oral Traditions in Contemporary China, Healing a Nation, published with Lexington Books. How can Chinese folkloristic approaches and approaches to Chinese folklore help us understand global oral traditions more generally? How does folklore provide communities with valuable resources for self-healing at times of intense cultural change? And how does the history of Chinese folkloristics provide valuable perspectives on the history of the discipline? These are some of the questions that Professor Zhang examines in his recent Chicago Book Prize winning work. Speaking personally, as a scholar of Chinese and Tibetan world traditions, I naturally took an interest in this specific subject matter. But I think that, as our conversation makes clear, this book's contribution extends well beyond its discussions of China. In particular, Ideas like the uh, like treating folklore as a cultural self-healing mechanism have potential benefits to our discipline more broadly. It was a great conversation covering questions including the future of traditions in China, the interaction between Chinese genres and Euro-American analytic types, and China's millennia-long scholarly tradition of attention to oral traditions. I hope you'll enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the network, and today I'm, professor, I'm joined by Professor Zhu Wenzhang of Willamette College to discuss his book, Oral Traditions in Contemporary China, Healing a Nation, published with Lexington Books. Professor Zhang is a fellow of the American Folklore Society, president of Western States Folklore Society, and has also served on the elected executive board and other committees of the American Folklore Society. Professor Zhang is a voracious and tireless scholar whose research interests include rites of passage, ritual studies, folk performance, film and folklore, folk and fairy tale, diasporic identity, and Chinese and Asian American folklore. He has developed and defined a number of valuable theoretical concepts, including folkloric identity, core and arbitrary identity markers, vitality and validity of tradition, and the cultural self-healing mechanism, several of which feature permanent, uh, prominently in this book and that we'll be discussing today. Professor Zhang, welcome to, the, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, to start us off, I'd like to ask you what is sort of my standard and favorite question. Professor, what's your folklore origin story? Well, uh, that goes back to 1984 when I first published, well, that's my first uh, official publication related to folklore, which was a translation, a translation of the article uh, entitled The Concept of a Motif in Folklore by Dan Ben Amos. Uh, I think that was uh, my... Uh, entry to, um, to to folklore. Uh, and then when I finished my PhD uh, uh, studies in the University of Pennsylvania, um, I began to shift my uh, attention from uh, more or less Chinese-focused folklore studies to uh, Chinese-American or Asian-American general or folkloristic studies in general, as we will talk about uh, 
this book, although it's entitled Oral uh, Traditions in Contemporary China, but I think the idea is beyond China. So uh, this is what I'm, um, I've been uh, going through in the past uh, four decades or so. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really fascinating. Um, and I guess since since we've already broached the topic, how did this book come to be? What is its what is its birth story? Right. Um, well, as I just mentioned, in the past, uh, let's say twenty years also, I focus more on uh, folklore, not not necessarily on each uh, tradition or a genre, but I began to move beyond um, that kind of a narrowly focused thing. So uh, fundamentally, I began to think uh, the, uh, the core question in folklore studies, that is how a culture or a tradition continues. And we know that in human histories, uh, there, there were many great cultures uh, disappeared, and some cultures continued. So uh, I know there's a common uh, consensus that uh, the continuity of tradition lies in the hands of the practitioners. We agree with that, but I think we need to ask further why practitioners choose to to continue one tradition instead of another. Uh, And that is the question I have been uh, thinking and uh, uh, talked about in this book in particular, which I, um, you know, try to build a a theoretical framework to understand that big question. Um, And then in the past 20 years also, I've been thinking more or less along that line, and uh, look at the different genres of uh, uh, practices. For example, folk tales, fairy tales, uh, proverbs, and the uh, ballads, which are covered in this book in particular. Um, so some of the things were published earlier, but it was really the um, just just pre-pandemic era. I began to think. Uh, I need to put all these things together to rethink about uh, the big picture. Uh, and that was also the time I, after I delivered my Archer Taylor lecture in 2019, uh, which uh, was entitled Folkloric Identity is the Thing. So I began to build my um, kind of ideas based on this uh, idea, uh, folkloric concept, a folkloric identity uh, idea. So that came uh, to be this book. I mean, that's really great. And I think it's something that the reader definitely gets a sense of reading this book is that it is, you know, it's not a single ethnography of a particular tradition or something like that, but it's instead, it is sort of a master project, as it were, or this is sort of the the project that tries to bring together several important strands of your thought over the past few years, it seems like. Uh, And so you've identified one, folkloric identity. And I think this is a term that's going to come up a lot uh, as we discuss the book. So maybe we could just uh, start discussing some of these concepts now. What do you mean by folkloric identity? What is it? And how is it different from, say, regular identity? Uh, okay, this is a crucial uh, point. Um, my ultimate goal in, uh, in in thinking through this concept is to to find a ways, concrete ways to deal with the racism, to do deal with the racist stereotypes uh, or paradigms in folkloric studies or uh, or in many fields as well. Um, because I think it's a contradictory, or it's a, uh, it's a, it's just par- paradoxical. Uh, uh, b- by saying that, let's fight against racist stereotypes or racist uh, paradigm theories, while we use the notion, very notion of race, uh, and in that sense. Uh, I, for example, I used the example uh, I, I, I uh, have encountered that if you study 
a tradition. Uh, you want to say, I want to study Chinese tradition or uh, Jewish tradition, or so, and then you say, okay, I nail down this genre, um, food waste or balance, and then you begin to define your group. You you ask people, are you Jewish? Are you Chinese? And people say, I'm not. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't ask you questions because you are not within the, the, the folk group that I, I define. So this is a common practice, but I find this is very problematic because folk tradition has no boundaries. And the race is the uh, uh, social construct, political construct. If we follow that concept, the very concept of race, to to study the continuity of tradition, we fall in a pit hole uh, that 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 we 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 are actually uh, serving the racist stereotype, reinforcing that stereotype, because the fact is any tradition is never ever maintained by the so-called pure folk group, you know, Chinese food maintained by Chinese, Jewish food maintained by Jewish uh, group. No, it was it is is the uh, is is the both insider and outsider that maintain a tradition, uh, and th- with that idea, I find that it is the shared common commonly shared uh, experience or folk practice that build the identity of a group. For example, through marriage. Through uh, adoption, through uh, uh, co- conversion, and any anything you can think about, there's no such a thing as a pure group, pure race, pure this, and pure tradition. So, basically, I argue that uh, folkloric identity is the way to understand how people maintain their individual and group identity through shared. A folklore practice versus uh, the previous or other concepts of racial identity, purely based on the race concept, and even ethnic identity, that has a problem because we know ethnic identity, the term ethnic or the concept of ethnic went through historical change from being um, uh, being the, the Greek, the state people, or city-state people, or pagans, and then being the other. And then ethnic also became a, some kind of a euphemism of racial uh, concept nowadays. So uh, that's why I, I, I argue that the uh, folkloric identity could be an, a concept, uh, could be a concept to to, to counter the um, racist uh, uh, paradigm in studying traditions. So that's uh, more or less the, uh, the goal of uh, thinking uh, through this concept. Okay. And so what we're doing is we're sort of getting into the early stages of the book now, because this is sort of discussed in, in, these, in, in these early chapters, is this idea of identity uh, also, the idea of, uh, the, or maybe it's a sub idea of this folkloric identity, where you talk about core and arbitrary identity markers, uh, and this is this seems to be an important part of your argument is sort of identifying what are core markers of identity and what are arbitrary markers of identity, uh, particularly within the paradigm of China. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, well, as you said. Uh... I tried to build uh, this uh, kind of framework with uh, several pairs of ideas. Uh, um, regarding the uh, identity marker, I find that there are markers that are arbitrary, that some are uh, core. By that, I mean, when we talk about identity, um, we have to identify what is the fundamental beliefs and the values that enable the uh, uh, group identity. Uh, In other words, uh, even in everyday life, when we uh, look at all kinds of markers, speech, action, and so on, some are changeable, 
to adapt to the changing situation. Some are relatively stable. Uh, that what I called uh, is what I call the uh, core marker, and the core marker reveals or expresses or even rooted in the fundamental beliefs and the values in the culture. Uh, whereas um, arbitrary markers are those uh, uh, adaptable when they encounter new situation. For example. Um, I look at the funerals of the Chinese in Philadelphia 100 years ago when they had a very um, a bad economic situation. But then they, had the still, they still had the, a strong cultural notion of being Chinese. So what they did was that in, in conducting funerals, they maintained the very essential uh, rights to uh, to convey their values, beliefs. Uh, and then a hundred years later, when economic conditions improved, social condition improved, the funerals were so extravagant, uh, expensive coffin, procession, and so on and so forth. So then if we only look at the uh, the, the, the extravagant funerals, then we find that those markers were more or less, oh, Chinese, Chinese, uh, or even uh, new culture. But the fact is, uh, um, for the practitioners, they have a sense what is true to them, what is adaptable to, to, the, to others. Similarly, I look at the how Chinese dealt with the changing uh, uh, policy regarding funeral in China, for example, cremation is a, a commonly practiced, but the traditional way of earth burial was, uh, uh, was banned largely. Uh, there, uh, they also find ways to deal with this change by, for example, by putting the ashes in the clothes and then put the clothes in the coffin. So they still bury the coffin, yet there's no corpse, but only ashes. So it is the form that changed, but the idea, the symbolic idea, or the fundamental values regarding death, regarding funeral, regarding that the cultural notion is not changed. So through these examples, I feel that if we can identify some core markers in the construction of identity and differentiate that from arbitrary uh, markers so that we can see the roots of the, uh, of the culture. And then that is uh, the essence of identity. Uh, and that is also part of the uh, whole idea of uh, maintaining tradition. Um, any culture would uh, more or less uh, hold their roots. And then if a culture for external or internal reasons uh, that they, they lose the, their roots, then they will disappear. And practitioners may be aware of that uh, or may not be uh, uh, articulate their practice in a scholarly way, but they know exactly what the, their cultural roots uh, are. So th that's a basically the idea of, of uh, arbitrary markers and the uh, core markers. Okay. And that ties us into also this idea of the cultural self-healing mechanism. That seems to be really sort of the point of the first part of the book. And so how do, how do these markers of identity how, and how, or how does folklore play into that to help create this cultural self-healing mechanism and how does that operate as you mm -hmm. see it? Well, uh, well, following the idea about a particular practice, tradition, you know, how that tradition continues, I began to think, you know, as again, as I said, the, the bigger question, why a tradition, a culture continue? Uh, why some cultures uh, disappeared in human history? So I think uh, uh, Fundamentally, if a culture uh, can hold its roots, then it will 
come back even after some up social upheavals or external pressures, come back in sense that they hold their cultural roots uh, and rebuild their identity markers uh, practice, and so that they have their sense of uh, 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 culture values uh, to in order to deal with others. So this uh, principle is um, similar at the individual level. If one individual uh, loses his or her sense of a root, culture roots, a home, uh, then he will be, she will be lost, lost in sense that um, uh, no uh, particular agenda in everyday activity, no goal of living a life. So that kind of loss could be seen at the individual life, uh, individual life, uh, practice level and the culture level. So I look at this again, the Chinese culture, and we, I find that, as I just said, there's it's, it's completely a misunderstanding that Chinese culture is a pure or Chinese people is pure, a group, a ethnic group or a racial group. No. Throughout the history, Chinese, so-called Chinese culture, has been a mixture. Chinese people uh, have been a mixture, mixture of different people from all over the world, and the culture roots uh, from all others. For example, Christianity, Islam, or other beliefs are, are, are mixed in Chinese culture. So there's no way to separate them. And it is this uh, uh, the mechanism that... Uh, adopt anything new in order to maintain the old or to tradition that enabled the Chinese culture to survive. Uh, so this mechanism is also uh, shown in, in I, well, you know, I borrow this idea from a, you know biological or other uh, ideas that uh, any organism has its kind of innate, inherent uh, Vitality to maintain this life. Even we borrow the idea of uh, uh, selfish uh, genes. Uh, that it's if if a culture can uh, more or less uh, maintain its roots, and it will find ways to maintain it. Uh, and so, in Chinese case, for example, we look at the oral tradition or material culture. We find that. Overall, Chinese culture can be um, uh, summarized to the extent that it's based on few uh, core uh, fundamental beliefs and values. And then all the rest are uh, arbitrary markers or expressions in adapting to other cultures. Uh, some of the Fundamental values and culture uh, uh, beliefs in Chinese culture would be the idea, for example, the uh, immortality of the soul, uh, where they find that ancestral uh, respect or worship is the expression of the idea, and they they also hold this culture value of a, a seeking. Um, auspiciousness and the avoidance of the inauspiciousness as a qi ji bi xiong, as a folk practice uh, to express their 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 cultural values or cosmology, cos, cosmological values through fortune telling and feng shui practice and so on. So uh, then with that, we can see uh, even modern changes uh, uh, adopting Western or other cultural elements, that is, uh, that 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 is not changing the fundamental values. Those were just tactical strategies in adapting to new cultures, and that's why we see a similar practice of a self healing uh, uh, appeared in many um, dynasties in the history. Uh, even so-called the Chinese were not ruled by Chinese, uh, uh, for example, by Mongols, by Manchu. They you know, have different language, different religion. Yet, eventually, they were uh, being able to uh, to absorb, to be integrated into this larger uh, cultural notion of uh, self-healing mechanism.
I mean, it's really interesting. And I, I think that that really nicely sort of introduces the concepts. And I'm wondering, as you sort of identified the way that Chinese history sort of plays into this, both in the sense that China has not always been ruled by uh, ethnically Chinese, if I mean, if we can say Han, but Han is sort of a neologism. It's a new identity itself, but uh, by non-ethnically Chinese dynasties, but then also by ethnically Chinese dynasties and the continuity of these traditions over that time. And I think one of the things I noticed is that this is ultimately, it is a political project, right? And I think that's the other part of what you what you do in uh in the first part of the book in part one is sort of recognize that this is part that folklore and folkloric identity are part of this ongoing political project in China. And I'm wondering if you can introduce readers to that a little bit, especially because, or listeners to that a little bit, because many of the mm-hmm. listeners will be less familiar with Chinese history and obviously don't want a 5,000 year history in two minutes, but can you sort of, in very broad strokes, how does how does how does the sort of the China Chinese folkloric identity fit into this broader political project that you've identified as well? Mm-hmm. Well, to to make it as simple, we see that at turn of the twentieth century, the concept of a nation, nationalism folklore and fairy tale, all those terms were introduced to China. So that showed that Chinese did not have those Western concepts prior to the uh, turn of the 20th century. And the reason those terms were uh, quickly adopted uh, in China was that China was at the time just you know, ended their Qing uh, imperial di- control and build a new Republic China, and they wanted to be um, you know equal to the West in building a new nation. Uh, even with the example of Japan, you know, being a strong uh, country, uh, state. So in that regard, yes, it, it was a practice uh, p- political, uh, but this political uh, agenda. Uh, first was uh, um, very much uh, westernized. That is, there's only one path to build modern China. Uh, that is, you know, go through the the Western uh, path. In uh, that, we also uh, see in specifically, as I mentioned later in the chapter on fairy tale, uh, they also create uh, uh, the, the Chinese uh, brothers scream, uh, you know, spirit or image, uh, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yes, uh, the construction of a national identity is definitely a political one. Mm. And this sense of a political uh, uh, concept has so much to do with the Western influence in the past just two centuries or so. For Chinese, uh, traditionally, there wasn't, I, well, that was not the pri- uh, primary goal because Chinese from Confucian ideas uh, 2,000 years ago uh, or for the, for the, even for the past 2,000 years, we find it was the cultural identity uh, uh, essential regardless of your uh, uh, origin of place or beliefs. So long as you culturally identify to the chi- so-called Chinese culture, then you will be taken as a Chinese. And then you can rule China so long as you more or less uh, adopt this cultural value, which we talked about, the, the fundamental beliefs and the values, uh, like the immortality of the soul, uh, the yin-yang concept, and so on and so forth. So that worked well. And then we just, at the turn of the 20th century, those Western ideas were adopted as political. But as, as a result, as we talked about uh, earlier, that when China, China adopted notion like a, a nation, nationalism, or ethnicity, and began to differentiate ethnic groups in China, 
You know, prior to that, there were hundreds of so-called different ethnic groups, but they were not identified in such a way as it is now. But then in the 1950, uh, 1950s and the 70s, when they identified the 56 ethnic groups in China, that was really the result of a Western nationalism and, uh, you know, a race idea. Uh, and then 50 years later, now we see that model created more problems than solving the uh, conflicts among uh, different groups. Because prior to that, it was the cultural or folkloric uh, uh, connection uh, in everyday life. But now that kind of a, a connection or conflict is added with uh, another layer that is political and racial. So people began to have, get the concept, oh, you are bi people, you are E people. Now we have different race. We have a different ethnicity rather than we have a different culture, different uh, tradition, different system, uh, different belief, customs. So uh, th- this political system is, um, is, is being uh, weared up now. I mean... You can see in Chinese uh, intellectuals in general began to find ways to uh, crack that problem by going back to roots. So for the past 100 years, uh, it has been um, uh, a, a, a nonstop debate of westernization versus uh, traditional essence, you know, traditionality. Uh, and it turned out that... And, a century later, at the turn of the 21st century, this concept of uh, intangible cultural heritage uh, helped China and many other developing countries to find, to realize what we should pay attention to is our own roots, cultural roots, rather than what is imposed uh, upon us by differentiating uh, cultural groups through race, through ethnicity, through political agenda, or so on and so forth. So I think this is a very interesting moment, uh, not only in China, but in the entire so-called third world, to uh, rethink about their cultural roots, how to find ways to, to, to what I call the do this uh, a self-healing mechanism uh, by by correct what they, uh, they, they, they took as a truth or as the only path of developing country, developing culture, maintain tradition. It seems in some ways like a natural extension of this sort of May 4th era idea of, uh, so May 4th being early 20th century Chinese idea, sort of the idea of zhongxue weiti, xi xue weiyong, right? This idea mm-hmm. of like using Chinese as the ba- Chinese culture as the basis and Bring in from the West whatever you can use. Exactly, but but you know, at the turn of the twentieth century, the the May Fourth movement uh, between the two voices you just mentioned, the Westernization voice was strong. Yes, right? and then even at the turn at the end of twenty first century, that voice was also strong, uh, and now we see that a new understanding. Yes, we are still westernizing in terms of economic and uh, technology and the social system and so forth. But culturally, we should stick to the tradition. That is why the intangible cultural heritage movement is, uh, uh, is a so profoundly uh, influential now, uh, even to the peasants level. Right, not only at the government policy making level, but in everyday life, in in everyday con, uh, con, consuming culture, uh, that concept is is uh, filtered in to, to everyday life. Yeah. So this is all sort of been laying the groundwork for the remainder of your book. So this is all sort of a very brief encapsulation of the many ideas that you're trying to cover in part one with this interpretive framework. Mm-hmm. for continuity of traditions in China. Well, in China specifically, but you're also looking generally. And, and then your three remaining parts look at sort of folk tales and proverbs and ballads. And I was wondering, before we get into them individually, why did you choose these three as sort of your primary 
uh, sites of investigation versus festival or something like that? Uh, yeah, that's a good question because uh, uh, partly because I have worked on these uh, more uh, as a personal uh, interest, uh, or partly because I think they represent uh, um, such a, a, a scenario. For example, uh, through fairy tale folk tales, we see how Western notion was adopted in Chinese culture studies tradition studies. Uh, yet, proverb was not. I mean, proverb studies was not influenced as much as the folk tale studies by Western notions. Mm-hmm. So that remained very much a Chinese way of looking or studying folk proverbs. And then looking at the ballads and folk songs, that present a different scenario that is little related to Western concept or is less studied by both Western and Chinese uh, scholars. So these are three genres, more or less, uh, r- representing uh, different degrees, different uh, areas in the so-called Eastern-Western uh, cultural exchange or conflicts of ideas. Okay. And so then the first, the first of these is, uh, or in part two, the tales, the folk tales. And as you just said, this is sort of one of the, uh, one of the forms of Chinese tradition that has been heavily influenced by Western folklore studies and Western folkloristics and by engagement with the West in general. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of this idea of the fairy tale and tonghua, this sort of this, very imperfect translation in a Chinese sense, and then, uh, and then talk to us a little bit about the Moon Man tale and and how it helps you understand how it helps to illustrate some of the ideas we've been discussing. Uh, okay, great. Uh, as I just mentioned, the, the concept of fairy tale and the folklore, along with others, were really new to Chinese uh, at the turn of twentieth uh, century. Uh, the reason it was new was that the way of the concept of genre was was totally different uh, in China versus in the West. Yet, when China looking for ways to modernize, uh, you know, into the elites intellectuals try to find ways to modernize China, they you know want to Westernize everything, uh, every discipline. You know, they introduce all these social. Uh, sciences and humanities. So fairy tale was b- brought in largely based on the uh, particular social political movement at the turn of century. That is, um, some intellectuals realized that throughout the Chinese culture, women education, children education was uh, uh, largely ignored. And how do you... Uh, promote education, uh, to promote uh, women education or children education? Well, tales. And that actually is more or less uh, following the Brothers Grimm model and later Andrew Lance uh, model that it relate to tales, relate tales, oral tales to women and children. You know, that model is obviously racist, but it worked at that time. So uh, the Chinese thought, well, through tales, we can promote children education and women education uh, and bring in the uh, brother's grim spirit, which is uh, to promote national pride. So that was a part of the whole May 4th movement, new culture movement. Uh, So they introduced the concept. Yet, uh, as we know that when they borrow the concept, they actually borrow the Japanese translation of a Western word fairy tale. Uh, you know, fairy tales, the term is well studied because of the fairy, even the French, uh, uh, but Japanese more or less interpreted, oh, these tales for children. So they use the kanji child, children, uh, to, to say this is the stories for children. And Chinese borrowed that term. So now Tonghua literally 
is understood as children's story. So uh, that quickly spread in China because, given the social uh, situation, you know the the high liter- illiterate uh, rate at that time. Uh, oral telling became popular. Uh, cheap uh, publication became popular. So that was a, a, an example of a fairy tale along with other genres introduced. So what happened is that after, I mean, throughout the 20th century, we find, as I tried to describe that, this concept it was like a, like a genie out of the box and became a new form of, of, of genies. In China, it became a literary genre. As well as, as well as a children literature, as well as a folk literature, so when all these concepts were built, uh, they were also treated differently in as a literature studies or as folklore studies as, or as a children studies. So these terms are causing um, confusion in one way, but also expanded. Uh, to the extent that Chinese use this term for different purpose. Uh, so if you compare Western fairy tale studies to Chinese fairy tale studies, you will see completely different uh, uh, pictures. Uh, in China, for example, it is now beca- becoming a um, industry of uh, promoting children literature uh, through fo- fairy tale or fo- tonghua uh, versus a uh, Tonghua, you know, in the West is either through Disney film or literature studies by by folklore studies, uh, rather than through uh, children education or authored writing. Um, So that's an interesting example of uh, how Western concepts were uh, uh, appropriated in China to adapt to the new situation in China uh, as others. It also causes some problems. For example, a myth, legend, or folktale. All those genres confused the Chinese because China, for example, had the different genres terms even back in the sixth uh, or seventh century. But when twentieth century uh, new movement introduced these new concepts, they abandoned all the traditional concepts. Uh, and I, I, interestingly, nowadays. You hear the strong voice from a folklore studies, a sociological studies, or even ethnomusicology studies. They began to find their native concept, native terms, so-called bentu gaine. Uh, so you can see this uh, uh, intellectual movement of seeking roots back to the one we talk about culture, self-healing, and specific genre studies are intertwined together, making the whole. Uh, situation not comparable to the West situation. How does the Moon Man tell, tale help us to sort of illustrate this? Because this is also sort of, as you say in the subtitle or in the after the colon part of your title, it's a tale in telling for a thousand years. And it really gives the sense of continuity in addition to this contemporary political project. Well, uh, this is interesting because uh, it was 20-some years ago I began to look at this tale and I found Archer Taylor was the one who wrote the most influential article, almost the last article on this uh, particular tale. Uh, he uh, basically applied the historical geographic or the Finnish method to study the migration of this tale and the recognizing that the Although it was uh, circulated in the West for a long time, but it, the first written record was from the 9th century China. Yet uh, he also uh, talked about how most scholars realize, although it was written uh, first, you know, the written record in Chinese in the 9th century, yet the tale uh, was adopted from India, as many other tales people can identify. Yes. So uh, along with that, I want to build more because I find that even in the tail migration, uh, there's a, uh, it's not just you know, like a, you drink a Starbucks, then it's, it's, it's a new thing. No, uh, tails 
whatever new tales or new element in a tale is adopted in, in a new culture, it must have a precondition. In other words, the new element usually are adopted in forms rather than in meaning. Because if the new culture element is adopted in meaning or religious belief, that completely changed the nature of that story or the value of the, that story. Yet in Chinese case, the moon man is a symbol of a matchmaker. And then we find that the same image of a matchmaker existed even 2,000 years ago in China as a symbol of yin and yang, which is you know, representing the heaven and the earth and the male and female. And then I searched around and find that similar image was talked about in different literature, classic records, Throughout the history, it was only by that time, the ninth century, it was integrated with the Western notion because the tale itself mentioned the moon man, the matchmaker, was reading a book in Sanskrit. Well, that strong influence, uh, marker, that was West Indian influence. But what I argued is that uh, migration of tales must have its precondition. There's no such tale that is completely adopted from a new culture. Uh, that is what I uh, try to say using the geographical, uh, his, geographical, historical geographic method, but to argue that uh, uh, culture adoption, uh, adaptation uh, has its own rules. It's really fascinating. Um, and then you go from, and, and I think partly one of the reasons I think it's fascinating is because this section, this part on tales is immediately juxtaposed with a separate section on proverbs, which, as you've said already, it takes us from something that had a lot of engagement with Western folkloristics, but, and to a tradition that had very little engagement with Western folkloristics. And I was wondering if you could briefly sort of talk about proverbs in general for listeners who will be unfamiliar, and then talk about how you analyze them as a way to understand Chinese life views. Uh, sure. Um, well, in general, uh, proverb study is a very much... Uh, uh, falling behind in terms of uh, folklore studies in general. Uh, you know, studies of fairy tale, myths, uh, uh, and other, other genres are pretty much advanced uh, to the update level in China right now. But proverbs are uh, little studied uh, because traditionally proverbs were defined differently. This is a, a, one of the questions related to what we just mentioned. When fairy tale myths were adopted to China, proverb was introduced, yet the definition was uh, um, not matchable to the Chinese uh, notion. Uh, you know, Chinese, uh, because of its linguistic nature and the role of the classics, uh, most of the idioms or pro proverbs actually were from uh, classic idioms rather than uh, the folk proverbs, right? Uh, although there are many. So uh, so the, the lack of a, a scholarly or theoretical study of proverbs is the, still the current situation. For example, 20-some years ago, no, 40 years ago, when China uh, did the great collection of um, uh, Chinese uh, uh, folklore, uh, including proverb, um, it, it has very narrow def definition proverb from uh, folk sayings, uh, su yu, and, you know, yan yu is a proverb, and su yu or xie hou yu, the two parts proverbs. So it turned out that the su yu, folk saying, or xie hou yu, uh, the two parts of proverbs or saying, are even more popular in China. Yet, when we follow the notion of a proverb, more or less in, influenced by West, we find that was um, something people don't have ways to study. Uh, so that 
that create a, a kind of embarrassing moment um, in fo- proverb study. What I try to uh, do in this uh, chapter uh, part is to first introduce some of the ideas in uh, Western theoretical studies and then trace the history of uh, proverbs in China, uh, definition, categorization. Uh, And then I particularly used one uh, proverb, uh, the old ginger is spicier, to illustrate how uh, proverbs actually uh, succinctly uh, reveal the fundamental beliefs in Chinese culture. That, you know, as an illustration for my bigger picture of the book. Um, for example, uh, through this t- uh, this uh, proverb and its many variants, I find that uh, Chinese uh, life views, uh, I call the life view rather than worldview, uh, is to differentiate the uh, the vague of worldview or cosmological view or religious view, but to more or less uh, to explain this uh, through Chinese view uh, of life, how to, in other words, the meaning of living a life, the life view. Uh, so I, I summarize uh, uh, the, the four types of life views in Chinese culture uh, or in Chinese everyday life. Uh, one is influenced by the Confucian idea, that is to enter the world through uh, ethical education, study, to climb the social ladder, uh, so-called. The second is uh, more influenced by the Taoist idea uh, and even Buddhist idea of uh, exiting the world. In other words, to follow the nature, the way, rather than uh, try try to get into the political um, struggle, seeking for reputation, social status, and so on. And the third, uh, I called it the next uh, uh, world, that is uh, much influenced by the Buddhist idea that whatever we suffer this in this generation, this life, uh, fine, we'll, we'll have a better ones in, in the next life. So that is the essence of a, a Buddhist uh, transformation idea. And the uh, the fourth is the passing the world. In other words, a Chinese proverbs, "Huan uh, uh, is you know, "Hao uh, si bu ru lai huo." So you, you you have a good death. That is not as good as a, a living a bad life or miserable life. So I think that has a very positive signal. That is, living a life itself is a hope. Living a life itself is a meaningful thing. So all of these ideas are well expressed through everyday life in Chinese culture uh, through Proverbs. So that's what I try to um, say in this chapter. I thought this chapter was also really interesting for the way that it showed proverb collection and sort of this decontextualized reproduction of proverb as being also a state project. And I think I think one of the things that really intrigues me is the way the the interwoven nature of state and vernacular in particularly in a Chinese context. I think I think in the 21st century as as people based in the United States a lot of the time there's this sort of very very uh, entrepreneurial sense of what is it the the contemporary startup and move fast and break things and and disruption and these sorts of things whereas that's not always the case around the world and I think you I think the sort of the emphasis on these massive collection and documentation projects sort of really illustrates that particularly around this idea of proverbs. Mm-hmm. Well, if I can add, uh, you know, 40 years ago, there was uh, the national project of collecting folk literature, folk uh, uh, proverbs. At that time, which is mentioned, the proverb was narrowly defined. But right now, there's another national project of uh, collecting folk literature. In that current project, in this current project, uh, now they expanded proverb to include a separate genre of folk sayings and the uh, two parts proverbs. So 
The idea is that they now want to collect everything that they can claim as a traditional, as a traditional genre, rather than narrowly uh, borrowing the West notion of proverb. So you can see this is also a national political agenda of seeking roots. And a dynamic one at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this also comes comes out very nicely in the final uh, section where you are examining what you're calling ballads, but your example is also th- more through the study of an instrument, an instrument of which you were yourself a practitioner, I understand. Yes. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about this part four and these and, mm-hmm. and sort of the history of ballad in China? Because there's a very long history of ballad collection and publication and study in China. And it's also tied in, in some cases marginalized, but still tied into uh, some of these some of these dynamics that we've been discussing. And, and then, yeah, so maybe start out with that. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, basically, we see uh, there's a separation of uh, ballads in terms of, of uh, uh, as a folk saying, and then uh, ballads as a, as a musical singing, folk song. So folk singing versus folk song. Uh, and then the third uh, uh, part of this is the uh, music, uh, the role of music in this uh, whole genre of uh, ballad and folk song. So the, the this is again uh, relate to uh, how Chinese uh, uh, borrowed the West notion and messed up their own study because uh, when you emphasize ballad in Western notion, it is more text centered. When you talk about folk music, folk song is more of a, a music centered. But the practice in Chinese history throughout is a, is a mixture. Uh, because of Chinese linguistic nature of the rhyme in poetry, in prose, and in ballads, that create this kind of a, a interesting intertwined uh, ballads uh, and the music, uh, as well as playing music through these, because playing music uh, among the folk, uh, it's always a, a way of um, uh, passing a story, telling a story through t- music. So uh, basically, uh, I try to present the, 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 the current picture, how these are treated differently. Uh, because if we want to study ballads, we can't only do text-centered study. We can't only do music-centered study, or you know, through music notes, annotations, so. Um, so I uh, try to lay out that, and then I particularly find interesting during the COVID nineteen uh, the year era, uh, there are still people using ballads, but you know, uh, singing in public park to uh, boost uh, their morale and bring meaning to life. And that is is a very good example uh, example of how the integrated folk ballads and the modern music uh, and the playing of instruments. So I try to argue that uh, in studying ballads or in studying folk songs or in studying music instruments, we should put them together, at least these three in one. So with that, I emphasize uh, uh, or reflect on my own practice by making the clay vessel uh, flute, the xun. Uh, I argue that xun is also a cultural symbol of um, Chinese culture from its natural use of a, a, uh, for hunting purpose, which is generally understood as a hunting vessel to call animals, to echo animals. And then became a ritual music instrument and then became a symbol of ethics because it's made of earth. And that's one of the few or one of the two types of instrument made of earth. And that echoes the Chinese cosmological view of the five elements informing the universe and so on and so forth. So when ethical view is implemented, uh, that became a cultural symbol of the larger culture. It's no longer musical anymore. I mean, it's beyond musical uh, function. So I find that 
in the recent years, decades, uh, the revival of this particular instrument represented the approach in, from Chinese culture view to re-understand its history, to find, um, in other words, to, to, to understand, is it an arbitrary marker of Chinese culture or is it the core marker of Chinese culture identity? Uh, and I personally find that in the past decades, uh, I, I personally um, relate my life, my identity to this instrument by making, playing, and teaching to students and to, to tell story behind it. Uh, so I, I find that's a, just a good example how we at the individual level use these uh, uh, symbols to relate a bigger culture. Uh, and I find a similar example in, uh, for example, Latin America, how Kena, uh, Zambonia, all those musical instruments were still are still used as a national identity markers. I think music is such an interesting part of this because it is one of those forms of expressive art that can reach and can entertain non-fluent audiences. Whereas folktale, unless it's translated, often really is limited to the speech group in some fashion. Music is something that even people who feel like they don't understand the words can appreciate the sound. And I think that's very interesting. Uh, and, and, I, and maybe it's something about the embodied nature of it, the embodied nature of listening as well. I am remembering fondly, I had a Chinese teacher uh, very early uh, in my career who was fond of teaching students Tai Chi Quan, Tai Chi. As, and I think he was doing a similar thing. For him, it was a personal sort of part of his identity and his sort of cultural identity and as a way of transmitting it and, and teaching and sort of bringing people into this cultural world. Um, and hearing you describe your experience just made me think very fondly of him, and I appreciate that. Um, well, Professor Zhang, we've used up a lot of your time. I'm really thankful for it. Um, this has been a really great conversation. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of the book. Um, but thank you so much. And before I let you go, can I ask my final question? My standard final question is always, what are you working on now? What's next? Um, well, this is uh, interesting, you know, uh, I work on tales a lot. Uh, recently, I still try to build uh, upon the concept of folkloric identity as a way, as a concrete way to find uh, uh, find examples to fight against the racist stereotypes. And in that, I have been working on uh, how fairy tales or children's books uh, picture books uh, uh, th that translate Chinese tales and then uh, reinforcing racist stereotypes. For example, um, one uh, picture book is the uh, uh, Five Chinese Brothers, which was published in 1938 and has been uh, um, promoted uh, by American Education Association as uh, one of the top 100 uh, books for children. So in the past century also, this image uh, is widely accepted. But I'm trying to argue that this is not an issue of illustration through picture book, but there's a twist in translation. And through this twist of translation, we find that different uh, ideological agenda, racist stereotype are, are filtered in. Uh, that is actually against the fundamental nature or formula of uh, tales because those uh, alternated uh, concept terms uh, are against the Chinese culture logic. Uh, so any further reading will find this is a really purposely um, 
uh, reinforcing a racist stereotype rather than following the uh, general rules of telling tales or writing tales. So those things are what I've been working on now. I think that sounds really fascinating. And I'm certainly thinking now to the fact that the Five Chinese Brothers was probably my first exposure to Chinese culture many, many years ago. Um, and I'm reflecting on the fact that when you go to China, people don't really talk about that story nearly as much as they do the journey to the West or, or Shui Hu Zhuan or some of these other stories. So um, I think that'll be a great project and it sounds very interesting. Um, Professor Zhang, thank you so much. It's a really great conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I know, you know, we did this in a hurry. So I was uh, at the moment out of my mind, <laughs> just ramble. But uh, I'm, I feel happy that we have a chance to talk about it at, at last. Thank likewise, you. Likewise. Thank you.